we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hi, Sam. How are you going? Yeah, going really well. Thanks, Hannah. Yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. Today, we've got a really interesting topic for everyone. We've got an OT. And her name is Katie. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Katie. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Really well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. No worries. I'm very excited. So how we always start the show is, where did you grow up? So I was born in Tamworth, New South Wales. Uh, Lived on a big farm out that way for the first five or so years. We then moved in near Newcastle in the Hunter Valley. So it's about an hour in from the beach. Lived there for most of my childhood. Then went to Newcastle University to become an OT. So lived in Newcastle for a while. Then in 2020, moved to Melbourne for two years to work there. Got stuck in the COVID lockdown. I was going to say that was good timing. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, And then I moved back in 2022 and have been back in the Newcastle Hunter Valley area since then. Oh, fabulous. So how did you get into the disability sector? So when I was doing my HSC and I got to the end of it, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So my parents sat me down and gave me a few options. So they were mainly the allied health space. So speech and pathology, nutrition, social work and OT. I was a carer for my grandma at the time and I was speaking to her about it and she just off the cuff said, you'd be a good OT. And so I ended up in OT, ended up loving it and then knew that I really wanted to do it. When I graduated, I did aged care for a bit and then I transferred into doing workplace rehab and NGIS as a bit of a combination role. I found my passion in NDIS and disability work and just stuck with that since then. And so I've been doing it for a good five, six years now. It's I found the most rewarding and the area that I re- really suits me as well as a practitioner. And yeah, I love seeing some of the outcomes from it. So it's where I've ended up and I can't really imagine doing anything else. <laughs> and you've started your own business. Yes, so I was working for a like a larger, like Australia-wide company. I, at the end of 2022, unfortunately became unwell. And so I had to really change what my work looked like. Um, I needed something with flexibility and autonomy and something that I could really make accommodations and really suit around my like health and well-being needs and so I started with my own business um, with the lots of encouragement from my friends who were also allied health and also have their own businesses 
And yeah, so now I own and run Thrive OT Solutions. And yeah, again, can't really imagine doing anything else now. You talked about some of your health issues and needing accommodations to continue being an OT. Can you tell us about some of those accommodations that you've made, I guess, essentially for yourself? What we often find is that people with disabilities are hired and then are sometimes not given those accommodations to be able to be in the allied health space. And I think there could be more people with disabilities who are also work in allied health and that would be amazing and bring something wonderful to the allied health space. So can you tell us about some of those accommodations that might be needed? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I work for quite a large company that had a lot of policies and procedure and structure in place that was for the most part, a bit of a one-size-fits-all. When I became unwell, I found that I struggled with things like meeting KPIs, working that rigid nine-to-five flexibility in hours and needing to be in an office, needing to attend certain things physically in place. And so for me, like I ended up having to make a very hard decision because I did really love my previous job and I was somebody who needed to be able to start work when I could start work and finish work when I could finish work and schedule things around when I knew I was going to be at my most productive and, you know, focused versus, you know, needing to kind of force myself to fit into this structure and fit into this bubble that was that previous job. And so I kind of made that decision of no longer trying to force myself, my health and well-being around a job and switching it to make the job fit around me and that it was hard to come to terms with there was a grief and an acceptance that came with that but ultimately I actually found it worked really really well because yeah with a lot of the participants that I I see and I help I do feel like I provide that extra level of of really understanding and and actually really getting it whereas it can be really different for other people who may understand it but they don't actually really truly get it until you've had that lived experience of it as well Um, and so yeah for me that flexibility that autonomy to choose who I see when I see them how far I drive to see somebody how many clients they take on when I need a break when I need to just have a week of report writing etc being able to choose that for myself was very very important to me it wasn't being chosen for me yeah yeah and not to mention things like all the doctor's appointments you suddenly have to attend and you know whereas a nine to five doesn't suit the hospitals because they (laughs) always schedule you in the middle of the day so that is often really difficult to put in you know schedule in because you can't control those appointments Absolutely. Things like specialists, it takes months, years for some people to get in to see them. And once you get that appointment, you need to kind of like hold on to it really tightly. And so, yeah, for me, being able to book appointments and have flexibility around booking those appointments, knowing that I can just plan around it when the time comes was so important. And being that it's in my own business, not having to worry about 
do I have enough leave? Uh, you know, are my staff going to be okay? You know, like I worry about me and I worry about my allied health assistant and, and that's it. And it means that, for example, I know that I have a procedure that I've got to have coming up that I've got to take a week off. Previously, that would have been really, really hard. I would stress about leave. I'd stress about work being covered. But for me now, I know I can plan for that and I can plan well for that. My participants know, my support coordinators know, and I think that's so important as well. And yeah, I, I'm somebody that has a fluctuating condition, so I can't predict, you know, I'm going to have a flare up on Tuesdays. <laughs> it means that I need to be able to, you know, would it be nice if there was a crystal ball to help with that one? Oh, I would love to be able to schedule it in, you know, Tuesdays <laughs> at 4pm, that's when the pain's going to hit instead. I would love that instead of, oh, you didn't sleep last night? Okay, good luck. <laughs> Have fun. You know, like for me being able to just sleep those extra couple of hours and then start work a bit later is golden. <laughs> yeah, and for me personally too, it's also about, ending like I might have started later say at 10 but by two o'clock I'm done again because of whatever's happening for me and to give myself permission to if my body is saying it's done time it's done time and you have to stop because otherwise you pay for it double time the next day and the day after that and so that is definitely for me something I love about having my own schedule and being able to, you know, when when you don't have that crystal ball to be able to say <laughs> that is the time I'm going to be unwell. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And I found being able to, like you said, like schedule in knowing that my best hours are, are 10 to 2, 10 to 3, knowing that I've got that time and that's when I'm going to be at my best. So that's my most my focused work, my report writing, my appointment times versus needing to be in an office from nine to five, for example, and having to use my energy and kind of like spread it out over the day almost. Like needing, for me, I had to get up and walk around a lot. So, you know, I had people looking at me really weirdly because I'd be getting up and walking around at least once an hour even if it meant I went to the bathroom 20 times a day, I had to get up and move. And so being able to just be comfortable in my own office, be comfortable in my space, do all the weird and wonderful things I need to do to be comfortable throughout the day as well, you know, like being able to take half an hour, an hour break as well. If I need to not being stressed that I'm taking too much time on my lunch breaks going too long, like for me, just being able to not be so rigid was so important and has worked really well for me as well. Yeah, throwing in a nap time in the middle yeah. of the day <laughs> and then be going, yep. okay, I'm going to nap now for an hour or whatever and that means I'm, I'm actually able to work beyond five because now I have renewed energy today and, yep. you know, today I can get more done whereas tomorrow I might not be able to absolutely and like I said so I have had a lot of chronic issues happen over the last 10 years I've had chronic pain for the last 10 years I think the 10 year anniversary is this year I do have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and I do have nerve damage to my legs and so for me when I became quite 
unwell at the end of 22, I ended up developing a seizure condition. And I had two seizures in really quite quick succession. I actually had one in the middle of the office, which was amazing for everybody to see me suddenly have a seizure. But then I had another one again a few hours later in the emergency room. And that was obviously not a good thing by any means, but it also forced me to go, something's not working here. Like you're pushing yourself. There's your, your mind and your body is screaming at you. You need to change something. And so my life then had to very much become the focus of eating well, exercising, prioritizing myself. And I couldn't just keep pushing through for work. I couldn't just keep pushing it to the side because my body wasn't letting me. My brain was not letting me whatsoever. And so that meant that I really had to develop good habits and, you know, walking the dog every day, going to the gym, eating well, sleeping well. And by having my own business and setting my own routine now it means that it's okay if I don't work till 10 it's okay if I take the time to walk the dog and then go to the gym and then make a breakfast and not be rushed and you know not have to meal plan for a whole week and stress and rush between every single thing and end up at the office really sweaty and gross because you don't have time to shower at the gym like it's just when I could slow down and focus on that while still having an income you've got to pay for specialists in your medication everything else so it's that balance for me of being able to do both and do both really well and not do essentially a half job of both and not really look after my look after my participants very well. You go out rurally sometimes as well. I yep. would love you to talk about some of the places that you go and also what are the differences you see between rurally and people in cities? Absolutely. So like I said, I was born in Tamworth on a farm. I then, when I moved to the Hunter Valley, we lived on a property with sheep, horses, cattle, lots of dogs, lots of chickens, pigs, everything you can name of. So I'm very rural and country to the bone, absolutely. I have a border collie who's an absolute nut job, so... Rural was really, (laughs) rural was just a really like passion area for me. And I just, especially I did a couple of placements in like one in Tamworth, one in Tari. And so I just saw how little access people out there had to doctors, specialists, allied health, even support workers and support coordinators. I see participants have to, use support coordinators from other states I've seen them have to travel six seven eight hours to see specialists as well and I just saw it as a really as an area that people really weren't getting the access and the help that they needed and because I felt pretty strongly about it I decided that I would go out there I through just connections I had somebody who said hey would you be up to go to Tamworth? And I said, of course, I'm from there. Of course, I want to go see Tamworth again. I love it. Um, and so I went out and saw somebody there. And then that flew on to me then going out into Mildura, which I do about once a month as well. Um, and then I do the surrounds of Mildura as well. Do Orange, Canamble too. So there's a lot of areas that I've seen participants who they told me they hadn't seen OT in two years. You know, I've they have to have people who were having seizures daily and couldn't see a specialist for six months 
and my heart broke for them and I just wanted to do what I could to help with it and because it's my own business it meant that I could make that space and it was something that I knew the cost to my company I knew the cost to myself and it was something that I really wanted to do for the people out there I find that they're really grateful just to see somebody they are so happy that someone will just come out and see them and it's not a phone call or a, or a zoom I definitely find that I fit what they need because they also come from a farm and so the amount of farmers that get so relieved when they know when I know what they're talking about <laughs> and I understand what it's like to be on a farm and you know like I've got a guy who is a double amputee who really needs some farming equipment he's had OTs in the past who were really great but he didn't get it approved because there just wasn't that connection of understanding how the farm was his livelihood and how he he couldn't go check on the sheep for example so that was something that I was able to put that perspective into the application as well and so yeah it's an area that just there's just not enough people out there that really sorry to interrupt you but yeah. it kind of annoys me because like I as a person am very city bound and I'm a very city person and a few times when I've lived in the country I have not enjoyed myself um, and have been like get me back to the city I'm a city girl um but to me as a support coordinator if someone said I need to go check on the sh I need some some specialist equipment to go check on the sheep I get that like that's not yeah like also if so for, for whatever reason if someone said I need something specific for my livelihood I'd be like yeah okay let's try and get it organized the idea that yeah. some coordinators are just sitting there going well because I don't understand it I'm not gonna try and help you annoys me <laughs> and I just yeah. don't understand it because I'm like no no even if you don't fully get it, mm -hmm. you can see that they need it. Like yeah. I'm, I, I understand that farmers need to check on the sheep or, <laughs> you know, I used to live in Gippsland, which is dairy country. Mm -hmm. And I get, because I talk, I've spoken to more dairy farmers than anything else. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I sort of have an idea of what that includes, yeah. you know, and so it wouldn't be. To it's not like totally foreign to me, but also I just believe people, and I don't understand why there's so many people in this sector who play gatekeeper and are unwilling to just believe that this person needs this piece of equipment. Absolutely. And it it goes well into the depths of like NGIS itself as well. You know, there's a lot of planners and LACs out there who don't quite understand it as well. And yeah, like it's it's really hard. Like the like the participants out there often get the same amount of funding as somebody may get where there's providers, you know, every seven blocks as well. But, you know, all of their funding is getting eaten up by travel and then eating extra long appointments as well because you're trying to get everything that you can possibly get done while you're out there. You're 
you're not just going out there and, and doing the interview and then coming back for measurements and then coming back for trials. You're you're trying to get everything out of that visit that you possibly can get. So they're longer, but they're not necessarily getting funded more to account for that as well. So they go through funding pretty quickly as well. I've also found a lot of support homes aren't necessarily able to take on participants. They're not necessarily staffed as much as well because there's just not as many people out there who live out there who do support staffing as well. Yeah, like it's really hard. It's just it's an area where you just don't see the level of support or even the level of of options of that choice and control either out there. Often it's one or two providers and that's kind of it. And you don't really have a choice as well. Or you're traveling really, really far. It's not, I'm going to go five minutes down the road to my day program. It's I'm going an hour and a half or two hours to the next big city, which is then more travel costs or transport costs. And it's just this cycle that goes on and on as well. And so, so many participants are disadvantaged because they live in an area where there's just not that much access. Yeah. I have heard the... LA season planners have said to me a few times, oh, well, they've chosen to live there. And I'm like, that's a, that's bullshit <laughs> because that's where all their support is. That's where their family is. That's where their GP yeah. is. Why would you expect them to suddenly move? Yep. A lot of times these people, are, it's their family property that have been in, the, in yeah. the family for generations. So you, are we expecting them to uproot? entire <laughs> history within their, their circle yeah. their communities because yeah. of their location yeah. like 200 years of history level and a lot of aboriginal and torres strait islanders as well where that connection to country mm. and that specific country is so so important and ingrained as well as like i've seen participants who have cognitive concerns like dementia or quite um, severe intellectual disability where moving them would be so disruptive and so confusing and would actually decrease their capacity immensely. And what are we going to do then? They're, great, they're now in the city, but now they don't know where they are. They don't know who they are. They don't know what is going on. And so, it's, yeah, it's all good and well to say they choose to live out there, but there's so many other factors involved that it's not that simple. <laughs> no, I'm so so glad that you go out rurally. So what do you think we could do to attract other allied health providers to do either be based rurally or to do the travel that sort of thing that you do? Yeah. What could we do to attract people to do that? Look, ideal world, I wish that there was some sort of way that, yeah, if allied health are traveling, that travel costs are covered by NDIS, not by the particular participant's plan, which is very important, not to the individual, but having the travel costs in, in, in some way, I guess, assisted. I think the other thing is that with the travel rules around billing, that actually causes a lot of concerns when it does come to allied health, where we, you know, we can only bill or charge for half an hour for certain areas or an hour for certain areas. That means that some providers, they won't go further than that because then it's lost time. It's something that it's a cost that I just take on because it's important to me, but not everyone's going to do that. Um, And a lot of people don't do that, which is completely fair enough. And that's, that's their decision and that's their business choices. But 
I do struggle that, yeah, I might travel two hours, two and a half hours. It takes me three and a half hours to get to Mudgee itself. And yeah, like I'm not charging for that. That's on my own time. That's my own cost on me. Cost for accommodation and food, that's on me as well. And so I do wish that there was some way that NJS or government or something could cover those costs or at least provide some relief for those costs because I do think that that would mean that people would be more willing to travel further and get to those further out places. Those travel billing guidelines do really put limitations on allied health as well. Yeah, I find that actually even within Brisbane because we're Mm. so large and you would find this even in Sydney and Melbourne and wherever that there are some providers who are like, I only go in a radius of half an hour from where I am and then some mm-hmm. other participant is further than that but still within Brisbane, so stuff them. And so yeah. for me as a support coordinator and having my own business, I'm able to say, well, I cover the whole of Brisbane and I don't care <laughs> if it's 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half because like it's fine I'm covering the whole of Brisbane because it seems silly to me that people don't just cover the whole of Brisbane or whatever you know (laughs) yeah uh and there's there is like that other side of things where I know as when I did work for a bigger company and I know from other friends in allied health land as well that we have we end up with KPIs with performance indicators um, that are part of our contracts and often they are billing requirements and they can be anywhere between four hours to six hours a day that you must bill to reach your targets. That doesn't allow for travel outside of that half an hour that you can bill for or hour that you can bill for at all. And so, you know, again, in in theory, it would be great that, yeah, you might go out to a certain area and you see four or five people and it works out beautifully, but that's not really how it ends up working. Um, And so a lot of practitioners do get really stuck by that. They're under pressure to meet certain KPIs and that means that they can't go and spend an extra 15 minutes, half an hour driving to a certain place because that ends up being essentially time lost for them. So, Katie, you, you are providing a really valuable service for rural and remote Australia. For those listening, uh, they might either be small business owners themselves or they might be working in a, a, in a medium or a, in, in, a, in a company as an employee themselves. And they're hearing this conversation, they're going, I want to see what we can do to get out into rural and remote Australia to help this area. I'm assuming when you made the decision to start your own business that you didn't go, right, I, I'm jumping into rural remote today as well as my <laughs> local area. It was a bit of a progression. What what did that look like for you? What sort of barriers did you face um, other than the, the, the travel and locational sort of times? But it's a lot of these communities are kind of close-knit communities as well, um, especially when you, we're talking about um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. They're, ve- they're very... How did you find getting into those areas? And, yeah. So, yeah, like you said, it was a pretty natural progression. So I, the way that it worked out for me is that I had a support coordinator that I was working with who were based on the Central Coast in New South Wales. They had a client that moved from there to Tamworth. 
and then that meant that they because I was ended up being the person that was technically closest to Tamworth they asked if I could go out and I was just more than happy to go for a, a drive for a day that then led on to my contact details being passed on to other providers who reached out and asked if I'd be willing to go rurally my is the area that I go to the most um I've made connections there with referrers who I usually end up saying yep I'm coming out on on these dates for these three four days I've got x amount of slots open then through whoever you've got and so it usually it will work out that I'll go out and I might see six or seven people in a week which normally I wouldn't do but then I'm able to do a big bulk of the work when I do come back as well so I do I would say like you know advice for other people is be is being able to make those connections being able to make it worth your while I guess being able to go out and see multiple people see as many people as you can do face to face in the one trip and then come back and be able to do the work when you're back I do, would say that a pretty important part of my business is that I don't necessarily do that one-on-one interventional therapy like I'm not there doing hand therapy or handwriting or anything like that I am doing assessments and reports which is like why I think it, it is a part of why it works as well some people do well with monthly visits for things like therapy so it is possible but I would say that yeah really making those connections and being open to people passing on your details so you might have connections with one provider and maybe you end up then getting passed on to another provider then from there and from there I also found that a lot of the, there's a lot of NJS Facebook groups, but there are some that are specific to locations. So there's like the North Coast, rural, regional, et cetera. Being in those can actually be really helpful as well in terms of making those connections. And often as soon as you talk to somebody about one person, they go, well, actually, while you're out there, can you actually go see these three other people? You can then schedule your week and make it kind of work from there as well. So your specialty is mainly in report writing and I know that you particularly enjoy accommodation like issues (laughs) or reports. Um, (laughs) So when it comes to sort of SIL, SDA, home mods, are there a few things that OTs in particular really need to make sure they include in those reports yeah so housing's an interesting one especially with the new recommendations and review and with some of the potential changes coming up as well it's going to be really interesting to see how still funding works going ahead I do think that it's a fine line between putting all the information that needs to be in there in there but also not writing a 4,000 page report that NJS may or may not read I found it effective when I've been able to produce things like a, a um, example, like weekly schedule with ratios, for example, in there as well, so that NJS can look at it and go, okay, well, this is what a typical week would look like. And I also found that really focusing in on potential risks to the participant is also very important it seems to be one of the things that NDS loves to listen to as well as the cost effectiveness 
as well. And so for me, having reports with statistics that back it up and detail around the, that cost effectiveness and that risk is really important because NDIS seems to respond to that. You know, it's the functional information is really important. It's what a day-to-day would look like is really important. You know, you can include recommendations around location or other people that they may gel really well with. That's all super, super important as well. But it is, like I've found with certain people that saying to them, if you help this person and have them in a sill for a year or two, they can build capacity, build independence. They may not need sill in the future. They may only need drop-in supports in the future, you know, versus somebody who may not get that support. They're probably going to need quite high intensity sill in the future as well. And so it's kind of finding that NDIS language and what they seem to respond to as well. Um, is very, very important too. Absolutely. I completely agree that it's the risk is so important because it is an insurance scheme after all. And so Absolutely. risk is what they need. <laughs> so with the with the risk side, I do explain to participants that it may read as dramatic but it is also very real potential. So somebody who may have behaviours of concern, they could end up incarcerated. They could end up homeless. There could be other, they could end up in a hospital, for example. It seems extreme, but it is possible. And like you said, it's an insurance scheme at the end of the day. So money and risk is a really high priority list for them. So tapping into some of that can be effective. Yeah, I think it's like on that risk note, it's like looking at how we do the participant risk assessment, what the likelihood of each risk is, what the short term or the inherent risk as it's called with like when we're doing risk manager and then what the after controls are, uh, the risk. So if you if you don't, if the NDIA says no to one of your recommendations, then what is the effects or the impact that that decision would have in terms of the risk actually coming to fruition. For, Absolutely. Like um, with where the behaviour is concerned, let's say a, a participant that uh, may be inclined to OD at, uh, or take um, overdose on medications yeah. that they may have available. So then it's how do we sort of minimise that? Do we need to look at restrictive practice? Is that something that needs to become place to lock those sort of things up and, and bring that more into a control framework to help support and prevent it from happening? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And I find that I'm often recommending like, yes, still SDA, whatever they may need, but I'm also often am trying to really include recommendations around therapies and interventions. You know, if they're in a supported environment, then the effectiveness of interventions and that ability to really, really practice what therapists are prescribing, it can be a lot more effective and have better outcomes as well too and that in like you said can help reduce that risk it can help really manage somebody's physical and mental health conditions and help them really thrive and build capacity as well which is you know in theory what we're really aiming for yeah is build capacity and trying to get that independent don't if they don't need to be so we don't want them to be in there we want them to be living and doing everything that they want to do themselves as well that's the end goal right like you know so I find that I often will recommend still SDA but as a combination with therapy and specific interventions and support coordination support workers 
community access is the other one. It's a holistic approach. It's not just a pop you in a home, good luck. You know, it's it's coming at it from all the angles. Do you, with like, when you say about, about putting those interventions and that sort, sort of stuff in place from your report, the key sort of part with that is then the implementation from the provider that's working on day to day. And this can happen from really, really good or just not actually reading a report in the first place or more annoyingly is the intake officer or the senior manager will hold on to it, will read it, but not actually tell any of the day-to-day staff mm-hmm. on what that is, how that sort of works. When you, or as the OT writing that report, what sort of things is really important for providers to take out of that to make sure they relay to their staff and how do they do it and how do they and can they work with you to implement that and how does that sort of work on a day-to-day yeah so when I'm writing those recommendations for like the um like the more specific like support so like support coordination support worker community access therapies I try to work collaboratively with the existing providers. So if somebody already has a psychologist involved, I'm talking to them and going clinically, what's going to work? Do you think that it's this person needs weekly, fortnightly, monthly? What's your clinical opinion? And I always make sure that whatever I'm saying lines up with the other providers' reports as well. I find that if NDIS sees two different numbers, they'll go for the lowest number regardless who says it. So... For me, I'm very make sure that when we're making those recommendations, it's consistent across the board. I do find that there is that disconnect of, especially for OT functional reports where we are requested to do them for an end of a plan review. We recommend all of these beautiful supports that we think would be great. We've got this beautiful list. Then we don't really know what happens necessarily. You know, that may be the only service that we are actually referred for. And so once that report's done, it's kind of done. For me, I try and make sure that there is a process in place of checking in and going, did we get it? Did we go well? Or how did we go? Some support coordination places are really great at communicating how things went. Some not so much, which is fine. Yeah, but I find after that, like, there is that disconnect of not necessarily knowing what's happened afterwards especially I find yeah like I said when you're only referred for a single thing you're not necessarily referred for to just be the OT for that year for example you may only be referred for a report and a and and that's it we don't necessarily get told afterwards and NDIS isn't going to tell us either (laughs) so we do find that there is that disconnect as well that's really that's really interesting especially when it's all like a lot of the conversation used recently is about measuring quality. How do we sort of assess whether or not those reports are actually fulfilling the need if there is that disconnect, which is quite baffling? Yeah, and look, I'll be honest, I definitely hear more if they reject something versus if they approve something. If it's equipment or home mods, then we do find out and we do actually know from there because typically once something's approved we then need to do follow-up and we need to reassess we need to evaluate services like that but when it's something like we're saying this person needs behavior support or psychology or speech we don't hear that side of things we don't know if they got the amount of funding necessarily 
we hear it from NDIS if they want more information or if they don't think that this person needs these supports. I find that what I do hear is support coordinator saying, hey, the plans come back. We didn't get XYZ funded. This is why can you provide more information? And then that then becomes into a whole other scheme of rewriting what we've already written, re-explaining what we've already explained, having to address really specifically with NDIS what their concerns are. I've explained it to my staff and to other people that often it feels like you need to hit them over the head with it to make it really obvious. And then again, that just needs into more funding and eats into more time. And it's just this cycle that seems not necessary, really. The urge to say, hey, Bozo, just fund this. <laughs> and to do it politely oh, yes. and professionally is sometimes... Yeah you know, very difficult. <laughs> I had an NDIS planner come back telling me that I needed to educate myself on a certain clinical area. And I really wanted to write back and ask what their clinical qualifications were. Oh, I totally would have. <laughs> I really wanted to <laughs> because I was like, I'm sorry, I've, been, I've got a degree. I've been doing this for a while. Because they were like, you need to educate yourself on this. How do you know that this is correct? I'm like, because I've been doing it for almost 10 years. Like, like what, what do you How much do of the report did me? you actually read to see, yeah. see the justification that I've already provided you? Oh, I wrote a very beautiful letter back that um, definitely had a few of. If you see page X and paragraph X, you'll see that we actually addressed this. But yeah, when they told me to educate myself, I was like, what education do you have? Did you go to uni? Did you do anything? How long have you been doing this for? Wow. That... Yeah, that seems like a pain that a lot of people have <laughs> dealing yes. with this. Absolutely. <laughs> I I have had an OT. Uh, so often I will read the OT's report and, and pick it apart if, if need be and then send it back to them and say, hey, I just need you to change a few things. And I've had... I had one OT come back to me and say, well, you're not an OT, you don't understand this, so I'm not making the changes that you're requesting. And I was just like, no, no, (laughs) you don't understand (laughs) me because I'm a support coordinator who's been doing this for many years and I've seen thousands of OT reports. I know the wording that gets funded (laughs) and I know the wording that screws us over. This is not about a clinical thing. This is about your wording. (laughs) I would never change your clinical recommendations. It's wording only. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's just such the difference as well. Like I, as part of my process, and this is something that I've noticed, something that I really wanted to implement into my own business is that when I send that report out, I consider it quote unquote a a draft. I send it out to the support coordinator. If it's got information that's really relevant and important to other clinicians, such as it's somebody with a mental health diagnosis, I like to read it. I want the speech pathologist to read it. I want that feedback Helm these reports, especially OT reports, they've become this almost gatekeeping to funding. Like everyone's told, oh, you want this funded? Go get an OT report. 
I know how valuable, how expensive, how important these things are. So I really feel that my reports and OT reports should be collaborative. So if I've got someone who's, you know, been working with the participant for two years or three years or even six months and I've met them once, of course I'm going to listen to the provider that knows them and the clinician, like the clinicians that know them as well. So I like being able to include in my report, you know, like, Say I've got someone who has a speech pathologist on board. When I write about communication, of course, I'm going to put my clinical opinion and my observation. I'm putting in information from the speech pathologist in there. Same with behaviours of concern. I trust the other providers and the other clinicians. They know those areas a hell of a lot better than I do. And it needs to be consistent across the board. And same with support coordinators. Like, I often will talk to them and say, okay, realistically, how many hours do you need to be working with this participant to truly support them? Not what you're funded for now. What do you truly need? And I will always try and honour that because you guys know better like, than I do. I'm not a support coordinator. You know, like I would never recommend anything that I don't clinically agree with or I don't clinically see or observe. Like I would never do that. But I think that collaboration and that, Working together is so important because you get the better outcomes when all the reports are consistent and are across the board versus ones where somebody's recommending like weekly, somebody's recommending it monthly, someone's recommending community access six days a week, someone hasn't even mentioned it. You know, like we're trying to get this participant to get the best funding and the best possible access to what they need. So I'm going to do and listen to those people involved because it's so important. Yes. Very true. Very Absolutely. true. Absolutely. So I know you said you don't do therapy so much because you're popping out to those rural areas and you're really sort of seeing them in a big block and going, okay, write the report. But you you did also talk about, say, when you're recommending SIL and then if the SIL house, if they went into a SIL house, they then could do all these therapies. And so sometimes what I've asked an OT to then do is write like a two-page report, for lack of a better word, for the support workers to understand what it is you as the OT exactly want them to do. Because as Sam said, uh, support worker is probably not going to read your 60-page report. And (laughs) so they need, you know, two pages, maybe three, that are very, very to the point and hitting them over the head with it. But this is what you must do to keep this person safe or to apply the therapy more often between the, the times that what it, whoever OT can get out there to to continue the therapy mm-hmm. on because yes absolutely if you can only see the same with like physio if you can only see physio yeah. once a month because that's all you're funded for it's kind of useless to see a physio just once mm-hmm. a month you really have to be able to do, be doing the exercises every day and yeah. so the same with physios We've had already two physios on the podcast and both of them talked about 
training support workers to be able to continue on those exercises in between times. And so the same with OTs need to be able to go, not heaps of things, but like one or two things that you're really trying to get the participant to focus on or or you want the support workers to focus on. I think, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, like, like with the physios, you know, the thing with intervention and this is partly why I actually don't do it is because you do have to do it quite frequently you do need to go out and see that the the funding very rarely covers what ideally would be able to happen it does rely on parents family members the participant themselves or support workers to be the driving forces behind that which is not necessarily sustainable or or realistic and yeah like I I've done similar things where I've done like a summary page of, okay, so for self-care, we really want them to kind of try to participate a little bit more. Here's a couple of things that you can get them to do. So, you know, while you're rinsing them off, give them a face washer so they can wipe certain areas off, get them involved, talk to, you know, talk to, to them about what you're doing, talk them through it so they're not as distressed, for example. Like there's absolutely things that you can do and you can put in place as well. I do find that not enough, Bills or similar actually are requesting or asking to have those referrals put out there. I don't think that OTs are necessarily getting asked enough to be involved with that side of things. I have met a fair few support workers and SEALs who have been doing it for 15 years and they know what they're doing and this is what we're doing and that's it, that's the end of it. So there is that level of training and trying to get them on side and trying to try a different method or you know like I know you've got four other people to wash but we're, we're trying to get this participant just to do a little bit more or maybe just not as distressed and yeah like it is it is a hard thing to try and tackle and it's really hard when you can't actually physically be there that often to to try mm. and really get support workers involved and really build that rapport for them to listen to you. <laughs> yeah I really love that example because I think that is a really key place where you can start to capacity build people. And, you know, I've often heard of the idea if they can, if all they can do is wash their face, you know, let them wash their face every time and then do a little bit more and a little bit more as they can and as the capacity builds. And, or like I had a participant where the OT, was um, teaching her to wash her own hair, you know, because as much as us as parents try, (laughs) you you never listen to your own parents. It's it's a rule of life. Um, (laughs) You have to have have a specialist come in and and teach you that for some reason. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I think... You know, it's such an easy win and I just can't understand why a support worker would dig their heels in and go, nope, this is the way I do it. Like it, that just blows my mind. Like maybe then if you've been in it too long, you need to walk off. Have a break. Yeah. (laughs) Have a break. Yeah. Honestly, like I do find one of the things I try to do when I'm assessing for still is I do talk very much with the the hands-on support work 
directors that are actually doing the, the physical work because I find with a, a few assessments and reports, they may say something like they need just assistance of one person to shower, whereas that's not necessarily going to translate for NDIS funding to they need one-on-one -on -one support for X amount of time. So when I'm assessing and I'm asking those questions, I'm going really, really specific. So I'm going, do you need to remind them to get to have a shower? Do you need to physically undress them? Can they orientate clothes? Can they do any section of the showering part? So I try to get really, really specific so that when I'm trying to write out how many hours per day they need, I can translate that to an actual potential roster of, okay, you know, maybe at the moment they're only funded for half an hour of one-on-one -on -one support for personal care when realistically it's actually taking an hour or, you know, for them to actually do it a little bit themselves an hour would be better, you know, so that they can, maybe they're doing it slowly. Maybe they need redirection and lots of prompting, but at least they're doing it and they're building that capacity. So I find that with, especially with housing supports and writing and doing those assessments, being as specific as you can and taking that time to really understand what the actual reality of looking after this person is so that the funding is actually accurate and is actually yeah. covering everything that that person needs so that yeah so, so that support workers don't feel rushed so that you know they actually have enough funding to be rostered fully things like that because it is that that flow on effect and so yeah I think especially for OTs spending that time to get into the real nitty-gritty of those tasks is really really important yeah that one around the hours and time is really important because I remember with my mum when she was in in aged care in a nursing home so completely sort of different yeah. funding thanks to the government for sort of bringing in more hours in there than what they <laughs> used to be and fortunately it was a little bit too late but um I, I remember that I yeah. used to have to actually go into the nursing home because mum's behaviors against the staff because the staff were too aggressive because mum wouldn't have a mm -hmm. shower in 15 minutes she was 130 kilos fibromyalgia polymyalgia rheumatica and a very long list of other really complicated multiple like sort of comorbidities mm -hmm. that it it would for me to come in even for me to come in it'd still be an hour and a 15 just on let's get in a shower yeah. let's find the right amount of clothes let's all right now, you, but because of her weight and because of her pain that she was in, it would be 15 minutes to go from a two meter walk from her bed just to the shower door. And then it's, let's take a break. So you can take down, mm -hmm. take the top off. Let's, let's slowly. And then there was also, of course, there was also some of the concerns around, oh, no, I don't want, she's a little prudish. Yeah. <laughs> God bless her little cotton <laughs> socks. So it was, uh, let, let's make sure I'm not looking. Don't worry. I'll get the bra clip. <laughs> Um, thank God my event management modeling day sort of came in handy and I can do a bra on handed. Um, <laughs> only time it came in useful. Don't need it any other point in time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it really, that, that amount of time that the nursing home had to, to be able to support just wasn't there. And, and then when she had catheters involved, that added like another 45 yeah. minutes to the hour and 15. And then what would yeah. be a normal visit that I should have just been able to go and spend time with my mum was doing yeah. personal care rather than actually be able to have that quality time because the staff weren't there to train. They they did not understand how to work with those behaviours, how to calm yeah. it down. It was very forced, rushed, 
let's get in, let's get this done. Yeah. Um, completely just funding mechanism. We've just got to make sure everyone's understanding that. But the same but problem sort of has, so has a problem. Yeah, and it it's it's so similar and in land in in seals as well. Like I see so often that fifteen extra minutes, you know, giving them the option to choose what shirt they want to wear, get, letting them, you know, be able to, you know, maybe they spray the water over the entire bathroom and only a portion of their leg. Who cares? It's a bathroom. It's fine. You can wipe it up. Like. There's just little things like being able to take the time to talk them through each step, being able to let them know what you're going to do, which is so important so that someone's not yeah, distressed that was, that and their dignity's not being taken away from them. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've seen lots of support workers who just go in, start whipping things off and doing God knows what. It's like if you just take and re-traumatizing just to say, hey, and yeah. Yeah. And then they wonder why the client is screaming and crying. It's like if you just let them know, hey. We're gonna go into a shower now. Are you, are you happy if I if I touch you? Like I'm gonna take your shirt off. Do you want to try or do you want me to do it? Like really simple things like that can just make a world of difference. And being able to really sit with them and say, okay, so ideal world, if you have an hour each morning with this participant, you'll be able to spend that time to give them some choice and control, to give them some dignity back, to give them some capacity building time. We're all gonna have a much better day. Participants gonna be happier. You're probably going to get through the shower a lot less distressing for everybody. So much easier. Yeah. And, and it's, it's little small things. Like, and as you said, it's not just so much yeah. like the participants having a, 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 like having a bad time, but if you're that support worker, you still, you still feel the emotions. It works. You kind of end up yeah. both going down a really bad point. And then the rest yeah. of the shift is on a really negative basis because you couldn't be bothered to ask or work within the parameters that that person understands. Like mum yeah. hated having showers because it was it was just traumatic from her because yeah. of all those times that support workers would rush in and go, no, now, let's go, let's go. But having okay. that slow talking, yes, it would take an extra 45 minutes, but it meant that the rest of the day, or something, usually whenever I came in to go deal with mum on those ones, it meant that the staff were it was easier for the, the the nursing home staff to interact with mum because she wasn't so worked yeah. up. But it's just kind of like, well, if you're watching me do this as an unpaid family member, oh, maybe yeah. just taking some, just some small little points yeah. would be really good. Yeah, just just a, a little bit. It's okay. Just go just take explain two, to her why. Just take yeah. two with you. <laughs> just two is fine. That's better than I nothing. feel like this conversation could go on a little Please. while though. Oh, God, yes. But, yeah, I completely agree. (laughs) Which does bring us to, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? Oh, God, I could, yeah, go on for hours with this one. Um, I would, there's a few things that I think would make a, a lot of difference. I would love to see some registered clinicians within NDIS itself within planners, LACs, within the organisation itself, I would love to see more clinicians in there just really adding that a level of that into decisions I think would be really important. I would really love to see support coordination funded more, especially in the first plan or two. I think that support coordinators provide such a 
extra level of one-on-one and tailored support that especially in your first year or two, NJS is a behemoth and it changes every second day. So that a lot of us need support and maybe they may not need it after that. Maybe they are okay or their family member knows what to do after that. But the amount of participants I see that don't know what NJS means, they don't know how to pay bills, they don't know how to access providers. So I really would love to see coordinators funded for to help with that education and understanding. And I'd probably say like selfishly in OT, I would really love to see, I guess, a bit more of acknowledgement of the role with the NJS, if that makes sense. OTs are definitely seen as this gatekeeper to funding. We, we're the ones that would get referred to when somebody wants something. But I don't see that necessarily translated within NDIS plans. We don't necessarily get funded or maybe they get funded for another allied health service, but they've got to use the funding for us because they need. So I would really love to see OTs really having better funding and I guess that better acknowledgement of how important our assessments and reports are for things like plan reviews and for extra funding for every therapy and service OTs and functional reports have kind of become this almost necessary thing for most recommendations now so I would really love to see NDIS acknowledge and understand the importance of our role and I guess make sure that we are funded appropriately for that for plan reviews etc so that other therapies aren't getting disadvantaged because we have to use the funding or core supports aren't getting disadvantaged because we need an OT report I yeah selfishly would love to see OTs be able to have a good standing and have a yeah acknowledgement of our role in it an important role that you play indeed Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. As you can tell, I love to talk passionately about all of it. So thank you for <laughs> So do we. That's why we have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have talked about it many times with some of my allied health friends. We have really start a podcast. <laughs> Public domain. hopefully you know you also talk about our podcast and say hey you should listen to this amazing podcast (laughs) shameless plug shameless plug i have genuinely shared it around to everybody because i'm like this is a beautiful podcast where they talk about the actual realities of nis not the theory of you know what ideally would be is what what it's meant to look like it's about the actual nitty-gritty of what actually goes on that is not necessarily talked about in the public or press, for example. (laughs) Well, that is our aim. So I will take that and thank you so much for that and for for sharing it around and, and for coming on today. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Huzzah. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.